Hi, welcome to Offscript. I'm Zach Lewis. And I'm Dr. Draper. Today on the show, we'll be reviewing the brand new film Pacific Rim Uprising by Stephen S. DeKnight in his first foray into a Hollywood feature and the 2004 Wes Anderson film The Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou. If you're thinking, that's not Isle of Dogs like they said they're going to talk about last week, we'll get to that. But first, the news. Let's just jump right in uh recently or earlier this week i should say it was announced that justice league ends its global box office run as the lowest grossing dc extended universe movie thus far yeah so you know justice league was supposed to be the answer to the avengers it's supposed to be the big group superhero film supposed to make you know mountains of of money and it just didn't it came in rough a little over 600 million which sounds like a lot but when you compare it to the Avengers, which I think actually made more than double that, um, it's pretty disappointing. And domestically, it was it was worse than all the other DCEU films financially. Um, I that article goes on to say that Man of Steel was actually disappointing financially, and so that's why they rushed into Batman vs Superman because they were actually going to do Man of Steel two next. And so, but this just kind of you know zones in on warner brothers problem is they they're rushing it and they're just creating subpar films yeah i think this is indicative of a trend that warner brothers for some reason just seems to be ignoring in the hopes that like they can get away with doing something different and people will like it and it'll be edgy but the fact is like we're not fooled by what came before you can't throw us a bunch of kind of bad stuff and then hope that well it'll all come together in this one if you didn't like it give us another shot because this is what your fifth film in the dc extended universe like it's not working we're not like we're not fooled we're not we're not gonna fall (laughs) for it again you know like it didn't work last time it didn't work before and i I say didn't work in the sense of like batman v superman not and, and suicide squad not wonder woman because wonder woman did work um, it, you know, you got problems and, and try and trying to rush it. Yeah. And just get past kind of all the beginning stuff, get through that first act of building a cinematic universe isn't helping you. It's only making it worse. You guys got to step back and figure out what you're doing. Yeah. And when, especially when you compare, uh, something like wonder woman. So wonder woman is actually the, the best film financially, uh, for the DCEU, which says, says a lot like they're, And that film is well-made, it's well-acted, it's much better written. It's still, you know, it's superhero stuff, and it's not super deep, but it's a very cohesive, comprehensive movie. Right. I think they're making some smart strides, and I say that very um, apprehensively, in, in kind of singling out the heroes and making their own movie. They've got James Wan working on Aquaman, which, like, the guy who made Saw make an Aquaman. That could be awesome for all I know. Uh, who knows? Uh, they've got um, the guys who made Game Night, John Francis Daly and Jonathan Goldstein working on The Flash. That could be cool. The Flash was a fan favorite in Justice League. There were Patty Jenkins is working on Wonder Woman too. So like for what it's worth, it does feel like they're kind of extrapolating what I hope to be the best parts of Justice League and building on that. That's important. You should have done that first, but you didn't. Now, <laughs> hopefully, you can kind of retcon that mistake and get people to say, okay, well, you didn't like this in Justice League, but good news, you don't have to worry about like the bad plot 
or the weird, I, I don't know. You don't have to worry about the terrible jokes that fell flat or like the mixed moods from directors and themes that didn't really work. Instead, here's just more of The Flash. You like The Flash? Great. Here's more Flash. You like Wonder Woman? Great. Here's more Wonder Woman. Like that, that seems smart to me. And I'm willing to give that a bigger shot over something like Justice League 2. Yeah. And I think a big difference here is actually the lack of Zack Snyder. <laughs> yeah. You know, and I. It's not that he's necessarily a terrible filmmaker. He's just, I don't think he's the fit that DC needs right now. Yeah. And that being said, I guess Joss Whedon isn't the fit they need right now either. And so I don't, I don't really know what that means. I know they're, they're, they're clearly willing to experiment here with directors. You've got a horror director. You've got a comedy director. <laughs> Maddie Jenkins get, working on Wonder Woman too. Can't Ava much worse. <laughs> yeah. Working on uh, new, new gods. Like, I, I don't know what's next. I think what they need to do is get back to basics. Part of what makes Marvel so successful is that they've really focused on the source material and really worked on just creating compelling, complex characters. Like, you get into the person that is Tony Stark and that is Steve Rogers, not just the Iron Man suit. Right. You spend less time looking at the cowl and more on the man behind it, right? That that would make sense. I realize for Batman, that's kind of a moot, moot analogy. But for other heroes, like, yeah, spend more time humanizing these individuals and kind of bringing them out to the real world. DC's got this weird approach where it's like, whoa, well, we're... The world, like the the world in the DC universe, isn't our world. It's different. It's like it's it's darker, and it's like there's more covered in shadow, and Superman's <laughs> a thing. Whereas like Marvel, that's supposed to be reality. Like that's supposed to be the same world we live in. Like Wakanda is invisible; nobody can get to it, right? Like that's. But but in the DC universe, Gotham is a thing. Metropolis is a thing. So it's difficult. Like, it's it's harder to kind of root that false reality into real reality. Marvel has an easier time of doing it, but that's not to say it's impossible. I think they can do it. They just got to figure out the right direction. Yeah, the, there's some really great stories in, in the DC canon. Uh, I know that the Flash movie is supposed to be the, uh, the Flashpoint saga, which is a, a really big uh, deal in, in the DC comics. And that has potential to be a huge hit. But it's it's a matter of are they gonna write an intriguing, engaging story with really fleshed out characters? The 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 villain in that in that movie is is gonna be is supposed to be the Reverse Flash, who's like super evil, and he like that's a great role. That's a great villain you could have. So you know, there's potential there. Yeah, that could be awesome. Like I said, when we reviewed Justice League, um, I I don't think each of these heroes is necessarily incorrect. I think they just need to given the right direction like that's that's the difference they got to find somebody who can kind of helm this stuff i mean joss whedon you could say got the avengers going but even then he's not doing it anymore like they, they've they've managed to kind of build it out to be an autonomous cinematic universe you can't just have Zack snyder carry the whole thing clearly it doesn't, doesn't work so that's probably way more than anybody would need to know about the Justice League and why it doesn't work. <laughs> We're clearly not bitter about it. Our next story, Steven Spielberg in an interview with ITV in preparation for Ready Player One, which comes out next week. We will be talking about it. Check it out next episode. But Steven Spielberg said in an interview, Netflix movies and streaming services deserve an Emmy, but not an Oscar. He said Netflix films released in theaters for a week to qualify awards shouldn't be considered for the Oscars. Andy, 
This has been a death of cinema thing. Now we're talking <laughs> about it in the news. Steven Spielberg has something to say. What do you think? Um, I think it's really elitist and pretentious to say that, you know, films that are in that are streaming services only are not like real movies. Cause that's essentially what it is. It's an appeal to purity. You're just moving the goalposts. You're like, well, these aren't real films because X, Y, Z. And then even if they do that, because like the, um, the theatrical release was a big thing and it's like, Oh, well they were in theaters for a short time. Well, it wasn't in, in the theater for long enough. You know, it's just, it's kind of ridiculous. And we've seen some really great and Oscar worthy films come out of Netflix. Uh, Mudbound, Mm-hmm. nominated for best supporting actress and uh w- one other but it's it's a great film and also a lot of times um films that end up on netflix that wasn't that's not where they that wasn't their purpose a lot of times a studio will make a film and then shop it out and netflix is the one who buys it so it's a lot of times those movies are intended for the screen they just don't happen to make there because netflix is the buyer or amazon is the buyer it's strange to me that a director who makes a movie about the future and gaming and technology and virtual reality can be so behind the times on something like this. This yes. is your blockbuster right now. You're telling the world that streaming services aren't going to work and that it's not going to take off and you're laughing Netflix out of the room and that's foolish. That didn't work for blockbuster. It's not going to work here. This is the way it's going. It's like podcasting and radio. Like it's this is this is the evolution of the medium. Thinking that somehow, well, it's not in a theater, so it doesn't really count as a movie is stupid. Danny Boyle put out a movie this weekend called Unsane that was mostly shot on a freaking iPhone, and that's in a theater. Okay, like you can't tell me that somehow, well, it's on Netflix. It doesn't really count. Works. Suicide Squad got nominated for an Oscar for Christ's sakes, okay? Like, in Mudbound is somehow, like, not qualified because it's on Netflix? <laughs> like, that doesn't make any sense. Like, you're just, you're being elitist. It's like you just said. Like, you're, and I get it. You're Spielberg, for God's sake. Like, I understand, but, man, you've got to step back and understand, like, this is where the medium is going. This is where people want to watch their movies, and that's okay. That doesn't make them any less of a film for it. Yeah, that's like people that that say like, oh, it's, it wasn't a movie, it was a film. Like, yeah. what does that mean? It doesn't mean anything. Um, right. And a lot of times you might have mixed release, like take something like Annihilation that is getting a, a U.S. theatrical release, but it's being released to Netflix internationally. Mm-hmm. So it's like you kind of have a mix uh, of both things. And and I and Annihilation definitely should be seen on on the big screen. But if that's not an option, it's fine to watch it at home. And I get that the one week in theaters can kind of feel like a sting a little bit because it does seem like a desperate grab at making it for award season. And personally, I do think that's stupid. I don't think it should have to be in theaters for a week to qualify. That's dumb. That's a stupid rule. That's unnecessary. Like, yeah, Netflix shouldn't have to pony up cash to get mudbound in theaters for a week for it to qualify. It doesn't, it doesn't really change the film. It doesn't change the quality of the film, whether or not you're seeing it in a theater or at home. Um, yeah, agreed. and it's weird. Yeah, because Spielberg says in this interview, once you, once you, what does he say? Once you commit to a television format, you're a TV movie. That seems like you lack understanding of what Netflix is, because I wouldn't argue Netflix is television. What makes it television? Like when I when I watch a TV, an original Netflix television series, it doesn't really feel like television because it's not on television, is it? Like I'm watching it on my computer or my phone. So it seems like yeah, just a lack of understanding of what a streaming service is. And why what they do should or shouldn't qualify for an Academy Award. Um, 
bums well, me the, out to hear this kind of thing from Spielberg. Yeah, well, the other thing is that we've talked about award shows are completely fabricated. They're all just about business and getting more you know, attention to a studio or to a film. Mm-hmm. So, like, awards really don't matter that much to begin with. So, to even argue about, like, what what is or shouldn't be eligible for an Oscar is kind of ridiculous in it in itself because awards are just they're they're nonsense essentially. They're fun. Right. You know, we we can talk about it gives us an opportunity to talk about uh films and maybe things that people didn't see as much, but it, at the end it's still it's all fabricated. It's right. really not it's really not that serious. Calm Gotta down. be honest, if it, it Calm feels down, like Steve. Spiel- <laughs> Feels like he's a little sore because he made the post and it was supposed to be awesome and it didn't win any awards. Like that's that's what that feels like a little bit. I get it. The post was supposed to be awesome. Spielberg, Tom Hanks, Meryl Streep. It's gonna be the greatest. No, it actually wasn't that awesome. Moving on to our last story, Movie Pass drops its monthly price to six ninety five in a bid to boost subscribers. This is down from their normal rate of $9.95 and only for a limited time. They announced this on Friday. I'm not sure how long limited time is. Andy, you love MoviePass. What do you <laughs> think about this? So MoviePass is kind of a ticking time bomb right, right now. They Their goal right now is to get as many scribers, subscribers as they can as soon as possible so they can leverage that into other kind of business deals. Um, so... They only have like six, eight months of cash left to to maintain their current business model. So they're under the gun to just get people. So the thing about the six ninety five thing is that you it's not month to month. You have to pay for the whole year up front. Yeah, um, and it's, it's like Movie Pass may not even be around in a year. May not be around in right. six months. Uh, <laughs> but they, but they're just trying to get subscribers hooked for the year. Um, like I said, in, in an attempt to leverage an audience. So right now they're at two million um, subscribers, and they want it, their goal is to get up to three million by the uh, by summer. Mm-hmm. So you know, that's that's their plan. They're under the gun. They're under uh, the, a huge time strain, and they have to get subscribers. And so this was part of part of that um, gimmick. I'm gonna say. And the, the thing is, you can't. Uh, and I I didn't know this before. If you you can't like cancel for a month and then sign back on for a month. Like if you cancel, you can't sign up for another year. Yeah. Well, I didn't know that to be honest. Yeah. That's a, so that's pretty lame because you can do that with Netflix. If you don't, if you aren't using Netflix and you want to not pay for it for a few months, you can do that. And then you just sign back, you know, you just start paying again whenever you want to use it. And they're, they've completely gotten away from that just because they need the cash now. Right. And, and and clearly, yeah, they do need that kind of dig out, which is weird. And I get them kind of jumping to six ninety five, but I just like when this first came out and they dropped their price from fifty dollars to ten. I don't get how people don't look at this and think to themselves like something something seems wrong. It's like it's like a, an outlet store at a mall with signs all over the place. They were like everything must go, selling it all. Like. Why? What? What are you? What are you guys doing that you're making a move like this? It seems desperate, even from the outside, even from somebody who's not an economist. Like it just seems like a move that I don't know. Just doesn't seem too well thought out. You know, I was thinking the other day, all these show, all these movies we do. Why don't we have Movie Pass again? What? What? Are, what, are, what are we missing? Like because <laughs> yeah, we see movies every week. You'd think we would be Movie Pass subscribers, but we're we're both not. Yeah, that, that that's a good that's a good question. I've been thinking a lot about that. Um, well, number one uh, for me is I like to see things on opening night and get, 
which means buying reserve seats, which means buying online. And those are two things you can't do. You can't buy online tickets and you can't buy in advance. You have to be at the theater itself and within a certain time frame. So for me, it basically comes down to movie um, watching habits. And movie pass just doesn't line up with how I want to watch movies. If I was okay with waiting a week or two to see something, yeah, I'd be fine, but I'm not. Movie Pass doesn't work for me because I think it doesn't work at my local theater. There's one like four minutes away from my apartment. It's the greatest. And they don't take Movie Pass. I don't know how they don't take Movie Pass, but they're not on the list of things that eligible theaters that Movie Pass lists on their website. And even if they were, yeah, I don't like the idea of having to show up and like buy one in my car from my phone and then go in and do a whole thing. Plus, apparently it's hard to get a, a card because they have a bunch of people that signed up. So it just seems like a whole hassle. And I know a, a normal movie ticket, according to this, this article, it costs like eight ninety seven or something, but I'm willing to pony up the extra extra couple of bucks and not have to deal with all that nonsense, which seems elitist of me, but I, I don't think it is. Like, the point is, I don't think MoviePass is, is going to be around too much longer. No, and, and it's, it's, it's just like social media. You know, if you're not the consumer, you're the product. Right. And there, there's a reason that this is so cheap and why. And, you know, I see comments where people are like, oh, you know, I signed up and I saw 10 movies this month. And I was like, well, that, that's great. But there aren't 10 movies worth seeing in the theater every month, generally. Right. Also, somebody somewhere knows what you saw and is making assumptions as to why you saw it. That data went somewhere. Like, it's worth something. It's kind of like Facebook. Anyway, we should probably move on to our two feature films of the episode Normally, before we start, we work out who's going to talk about what. Totally didn't do that this time. I, I'm realizing that now. So, Andy, you have a preference? Which one you want to give the plot for, Pacific Rim or Life Aquatic? <laughs> I'll, uh, I'll give, it, give it a crack for Pacific Rim. Okay, well, we should probably do Pacific Rim first. It is the movie that's out this week. Is that all right with you? That is, that's fine. Well, go ahead and kick it off, please. Yeah, don't, don't let me stop you. <laughs> okay, so I, I have a, a good story about this. Well, should I save it for Death of Cinema or should I tell my, my Pacific Rim story now? I, God, I feel bad. I don't know your Pacific Rim story. Either way, you should definitely say the title so I can put in that cool <laughs> music cue. Pacific Rim Uprising. We were born into a world at war. Between the monsters that destroyed our cities and the monsters we created to stop them, we thought we had sacrificed enough. Okay, so so this film takes place about 10 years after the first one. And to just very quickly catch you up, we have, in the first, first film, we have these giant Godzilla-like monsters called Kaiju that are attacking Earth. And so in response, we built these giant robots to fight them. And we beat them, we defeated them, we sent them back to the Shadow Realm or wherever they, they came from. And that was kind of the end of the first movie. So big robots smashing big monsters, destroying stuff. That's, that's basically the, the movie. And so in the second one, it's 10 years after, you know, apparently the threat is back. And the main character is played by uh, John Boyega. He's uh, named uh, Jake Pentecost. Who plays cool the son, Yeah, who plays the son of Idris Elba's, Idris Elba's character uh, from the first film. And it, it starts out very, you know, cliche. Like, he, he, he's brought in to, you know, train the new generation of pilots and... You know, the, the new threat er, emerges and they have to come and kind of work together. And basically, the, the plot's kind of nonsensical. It's mostly about big robots smashing stuff. And that's really all you need to know. <laughs> it's not much more complicated than that. Right. I, I think it's important to make this clear right from the beginning. The best parts, for me, don't know about you, Andy, the best parts of Pacific Rim Uprising are, are the robot fights. 
everything yes. else in that movie was lesser. Uh, when it got to the robot fights, I was like, oh, thank God, more robot fights. Like, that's the good stuff. Um, and that, that's what the movie is. Like, let's call a spade a spade. You don't go see Transformers for the compelling plot. Like, you see it to see robots smashing each other. Like, that's what you want. Big CGI fight. And for what it's worth, um, this movie does that does that well, I think. I, I actually really enjoyed a lot of the action scenes. I'd be like, I, I'd, I'd get geared up for it. Like, all right, going to see some robot fights. Cool. So that, that was where I kind of started in on it. Yeah, I, I think enjoying cinema has a lot to do with what kind of expectations you bring to a movie. And I fully expected for there not to, to be a minimal, nonsensical, incoherent plot. And that's kind of exactly what I got. And I got big, smashy, you know, robot things. Um, so I'll, I'll talk about some things I did like. Uh, I did like John Boyega's character. I felt like he had really fresh dialogue. I wonder if he kind of imp- improvised his most of his part because he, he speaks, he's British, and he, you know, kind of... Sp- speaks and uses a lot of Brit- British phrases or mannerisms. And it's, I feel like that would be a hard time writing that. Um, so I feel like he just kind of either improvised or just every line, he just kind of made his, his own, but his character is interesting and, and kind of well fleshed out more. Everyone else is just kind of like stock and boilerplate. Yeah. Jake, Jake Pentecost, John Boyega's character. He does a great job in that. I'll be honest, a couple of his lines, like a couple of jokes, I felt like fell flat. I was like, Oh, that doesn't, that doesn't really work for me, but he really does hold down the movie in that you like him. He's likable. Like there's, there's nothing about him that you're like, Oh, I can't stand this kid. Like he's, he's likable and like it works. And I think part of that is because of star Wars. The other part is because yeah, John Boyega is just a really likable dude. He seems like a cool, interesting guy. Um, the other kind of breakout performance for this was the girl who played Amara Nemani, which was Kaylee Spinet. Sp- I'm not sure how to say I'm it. Not, you know, what's funny is that her, Real name sounds as ridiculous as her movie name. <laughs> right. Kaylee Spaney? I don't yeah. know. I, I would go for Spaney. I'm not sure exactly. S-P-A-E-N-Y. If you know, email us at mailitoffscript.com and let me know how to say it. Off, offscriptfilmreview.com. My God, I'm falling apart here. <laughs> I'm done with the names. I'm out on the names. Um, but yeah, like she was pretty good as this kind of young character that gets taken under Jake's wing. Um, she... Kind of, she 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 wants to pilot a Jaeger. She had an incident with her family in the past. She kind of plays the what was the Mako character from the first one, the young girl. Yeah, she kind of fills that role a little bit. It was a bummer not to see more of the old cast returning. You get a couple good ones. You get Charlie Day and Burn Gorman, the two kind of odd couple uh, scientists. They're yeah. back, which is fun. Um, but even their characters, you don't get enough of that odd couple goodness. They, they even kind of hint at it. The movie kind of laughs at itself, um, but it kind of doesn't happen, which is a bummer. Like yeah. that, Because that was something I really enjoyed in Pacific Rim, like this wonderful little subplot with these two. Other, other than that, you get Scott Eastwood uh, as Jake's kind of partner uh, named Nate and a bunch of other kids that run around uh, as, as cadets that essentially for me amounted to... Um, like the boxcar children, like you just didn't, <laughs> yeah. did not so, need them at all. So there's a, a ton of just like military cliches in the movie. And that's, that's what I'm So, you know, he's got to come and teach the new generation of pilots and they all don't get along and they're all super rivals and they hate each other. But in the end they work together to def- overcome and defeat. Like it's, oh sure, it, and they're all like, you know, you have your stock Russian character and your stock Asian character and your stock, oh, yeah. like yeah, yeah, it's yeah. this, totally. And that's what I mean by all those people had very stiff 
dialogue compared to, you know, uh, John Boyega. Yeah. And we got into some pro, at least for me, I, I got into some problems with plot development and, and kind of personal character development and motivation. And I can give a couple quick examples off, off the very beginning. Um, the young girl, uh, Amara in the movie who's taken under Jake's wing, um, she is off on her own at the beginning. She is homeless and she is working on kind of a Jaeger project of her own. And she ends up getting kind of tangled up with Jake and they ended up getting taken back to the military. And they're like, Jake, you're re-enlisting. You're back in. And they're like, good news because you know, all this Jaeger stuff, you're a cadet now. And she's like excited about it. And all I could think is like, why didn't she just join the military? Like, why Why was <laughs> yeah. she running around homeless? Like, why wouldn't she? And and that's part of her motivation. She's like, I wanted to get into making Jaegers so I could get back at the kaiju for ruining my life and taking my family. I'm like, why didn't you just Sign join up. the military? Yeah. <laughs> why didn't like, you just so enlist? <laughs> that was weird. And then the other thing that was weird, and this again, like the first 20 minutes of the movie, Jake's character gets back into the army, which he doesn't want to be in, but he does it kind of begrudgingly. Um... And he gets back in and he has a couple scenes with Scott Eastwood's character, Nate, where they're clearly at odds. They used to be partners, but they had a falling out and things didn't work out. Now they're kind of angry at each other. They don't like each other. So they get a couple scenes of them like training the cadets, uh, but you never get them training like at all. You never see Jake in like a Jaeger actually piloting one. Yeah. Um, then you get he's a, a natural weird, <laughs> right then you get a right well his dad did it so he's natural right then you get this weird jilted scene right after like three scenes of the two of these guys being rivals not liking each other where suddenly like they're in a mess hall late at night drinking a beer together and making a sunday and then after that the next scene they're both co-piloting a jaeger and they're on their way. I'm like, whoa, where's the training montage? Like, why? <laughs> how, Jake's just ready for combat? Like, easy. Um, so, there- yeah. And there's just a couple of there's a couple of weird missteps in the movie like that. Like, I don't know if it's editing decisions where they just, like, cut a scene they didn't need or what. But it's odd and, like, jilted. And not and, everybody picked up on it. it yeah. Maybe it was just me cherry picking. No, it, it definitely moves way too fast. And there's there's a million subplots in it. That's the part of the problem. You know, you have the, the the training the cadets and the, you know, corporate espionage and the the science guys and the, and it, there it's all happening kind of way too fast. And 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 for for him to, you know, essentially he's supposed to be training the cadets. I don't think there's ever a scene of him training the cadets. At, no, like, at all. <laughs> like this, he's got like, scenes this, where he's kind of hanging out with Amara, but like, no, he's never. I mean, he kind of just doesn't want to be there. Um, and they never really explain. Well, I guess they do explain. It just didn't seem like a good answer to me at the time. I think the movie really suffered from uh, direction that wasn't Guillermo del Toro. And to be fair, he was busy making the best picture of 2017, um, according to the Academy. So that's fine. But it's kind of a bummer. Yeah, this comes five years after the original Pacific Rim. And the original, while I wasn't that much of a fan, it, I can't, I, I, I'd be remiss if I didn't admit it had a certain charm to it. And this kind of just doesn't, it lacks that level of polish. Steven S. DeKnight, uh, this is his first feature film, like I said at the beginning of the show. And I like, it kind of shows, man. Like this, this movie's, it's got, it's got some seams and they're, they're, they're pretty, you can see them. Yeah, one one of the issues I have, and I kind of had this one in the first one as well. There's a little bit too much jargon and vocabulary. Yeah. Um, you know, there's the Godzilla. 
huge monsters are called kaiju. The giant robots are called Jaeger. They 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 can't just pilot them. They have no. We have to have this neural link, and it's called drifting. And I get lost in in all the lingo of it. Right, and I, I to be fair, I got lost too, but not necessarily in the lingo. I got lost in like the backstory and exposition because the first like twenty minutes of this movie they lay a lot on you really fast, and it's it's hard to keep up. And I was curious to see because I'm always curious to see how a sequel follows its predecessor a few years after the fact by a different director. How do you do it? You know, do you have a flashback at the beginning? Do you have somebody telling exposition around a campfire to a bunch of kids? Like, what's the secret? And this one is essentially a retelling, I would say. I wouldn't say it's like a flashback. Um, But they just kind of string it through dialogue and you kind of miss stuff. Yeah, if you're not paying attention, you're going to miss big plot points like there was a character in this that for for the good uh, the first half of the movie did not know why they were important or why they mattered and then i figured it out (laughs) later because everybody cared and i was like okay now now i get like this is this this character is important to the story kind of but not really um i just yeah it was hard for me to keep track and in like an action movie where you shouldn't have to do a whole lot of thinking i don't think you should come across that And, and it seemed like the knight just didn't really know what to do with all of that exposition. He didn't know where to put it. And so he kind of just breadcrumbed it through the movie and it didn't, didn't really work. Yeah. It it was definitely narratively difficult to kind of keep up with what was happening. Yeah. But again, I do think the Jaeger fights are the best part because they don't make you wait that long, which is nice. You get to them pretty quick. They're, they're, they're kind of spread throughout the movie, which is good stuff. One thing that did disappoint me, um, and this was totally a Del Toro thing, I realize now. The first one, to me, is if I recall, because I haven't seen it in a few years, had kind of a false ending. It seems like they're going to the big fight, the big show, the climax, and they win this fight, and it turns out, no, that totally wasn't it. There's, there's a whole other thing. And then you get the awesome speech from Idris Elba about canceling the apocalypse, and then you get like the epic fight at the end. The thing you thought was it was only like small time compared to that. This one doesn't do that. Yeah, You, you, get, you get a speech... Then the big fight, like that's it. It's kind of a bummer. Like, and I, I, I wouldn't feel that way if the first film hadn't conditioned me to expect it, to expect like the kind of a different kind of approach and a twist on uh, the traditional robot fighting action film format. Yeah. Um, man, Del Toro just he he made it work in the first Pacific Rim, and it was a bummer not to really see that here. Um, any other thoughts before we move on? I guess. Um, there was some gratuitous product placement <laughs> throughout. Throughout, I don't know if you noticed that. Oh, There's really? A, yeah, there was. Well, there was some like, oh look, I'm eating Oreos and a couple of other things that were really kind of obvious to me. But yeah, was, but maybe it was just me. No, that's fair. Like, like, like I said, that scene where Scott Eastwood and John Boyega are making a Sunday and like having beers in the mess hall. Like, yeah, there were like three or four officially licensed products in there. And this is supposed to be set in the future, but like they just happen to still have Oreos and Heineken. So I guess that's, you call that what it is. I felt like the casting was just a little off. And, and the casting in the way of like how these actors are supposed to play their roles. The main villain in this, in this film should not have been the villain in the film. That's my opinion and i don't want to give away what that's about i don't know if you feel you, you look like you're no confused, no no so no i no i, I don't know how you I feel agree. that way but i agree i was just thinking it feels very like cheap and budget and a cop out yeah it kind of did and it's like just 
I don't know. Yeah, and and I'm, I don't I don't know what to expect from a movie like this. I'm not, I don't I don't think I should be expecting like Transformers Five, but like it would have been cool to see the world of Pacific Rim after the fall because in Pacific Rim One, the first one, like there's still humanity left. There are still cities. Like it, there's not a whole lot of it, but like there's still you know. We still we still own the planet, and, and they defeat the kaiju, and good news, it's fine. This this one is kind of the same way. It's the same setup. Like, humanity still runs the world, and oh yeah, there's some problems, but we'll deal with it, you know? like Yeah. It would have been cool to see the world of Pacific Rim in kind of a post-apocalyptic format. It would have been cool to see it when everything went wrong, you know? And how, how do we kind of rally for one last hurrah? This one kind of forces that, but it doesn't set up the stage to really show you that. They just tell you about it. So, I don't know. I thought that's where it fell flat. But anything else before final recommendations? No, I'm ready. <laughs> Andy, would you see Pacific Rim Uprising? Or would you would you pay to see Pacific Rim Uprising, I guess? Would you recommend Pacific Rim Uprising? So, you know, I think if you're, you know, going out to casual movie going with a bunch of friends... And it's a good group movie. It's a good Netflix movie. If you're a fan of giant robot fights, yeah, sure, I'd, I would recommend it for that. But just you got to know what you're getting into. Yeah, I think I like Pacific Rim more than most of the Transformers movies, probably all of them. Um, and this this one applies. I, I think kind of the the mythology of Pacific Rim, the way the people interact with each other in the robots, the way they control things. Like, there's, there's more to it, and I, and I like it. I think there's more substance. So while I like this movie more than probably any of the Transformers films, I, I wouldn't recommend buying a ticket. Um, brilliant film for Netflix. In fact, I was thinking as we were watching it, like, I feel like the third one of these, if they make a third one, will probably be direct to Netflix. And it'll probably be good because it'll be on Netflix. Um, I, I, yeah, I liked it for the, for the fun, goofy, cliche action flick, but anything more than that, you're going to be disappointed. Yeah. So yeah, that's Pacific Rim, I guess. So before we get to the life aquatic, we should talk about our, uh, death of cinema segment. So, so today on this week for uh, death of cinema, we're going to be talking about, Vague cinema release dates. <laughs> You're really bitter about this one, and I can't blame you. So you you wanted to kind of talk about this. Please set this up. Yeah, go go ahead. <laughs> okay, so we had planned to discuss Pacific Rim and Isle of Dogs on this week's show. And uh, when I looked up times, there was one theater showing Isle of Dogs, and it was about 40 minutes away. So I was like, you know, I'll do it for my love of cinema and for the show... <laughs> I'm going to go yeah. drive to this uh, Alamo Draft House that's 40 minutes away. I practically have to drive to Mexico to get there. Uh, so I do, and I realize I actually, they were just advertising showtimes for April 7th and not not on the weekend. So I realized I had to act, and I'd, I had already bought my ticket in advance. So I bought an, an advance ticket to Isle of Dogs, that, but in like three weeks. So I, I get there. And I realize what I've done, and I'm totally embarrassed in front of the checker. And so he said, and I, you know, I just asked what else is playing, and they said, you know, Pacific Rims. And so I was like, fine. I think I texted you and I said, fine, I will go see see that. (laughs) Pacific Rim, yeah. But what's annoying is that I looked, I looked it up everywhere, and the official release date of Isle of Dogs is March 23rd, 
it is not playing anywhere. And now we're major markets. We're both in major markets, and it's, I mean, it might just be in New York and L.A., but it's nowhere yeah. close. No, I, it's funny, we, we kind of have two weird movie release stories uh, to talk about on this episode, and we'll get to the other one in a minute, but for the first one, yes, this. I was in the same boat. If you go back and listen to our previous episode, you'll hear us confidently announce that next episode we'll be talking about Isle of Dogs. Um, for anybody who heard that and wanted to hear about it, sorry. Uh, imagine our <laughs> disappointment when we told the whole world we'd talk about it and then we couldn't see it. Yeah, we're in major markets. It's not like we're out in the middle of nowhere. Like, And the soonest I could possibly see this movie is, as of the recording, tomorrow, uh, Tuesday. I think some places are getting what they consider early release is of it. Like, I don't... So I don't get it. Yeah, I don't know what exactly they were going for here. And this is a trend that I'd love to just hammer Wes Anderson for, but I know it's not his fault. It's not like Wes Anderson's like, hmm, I can work one over on the rest of the world and fool them into trying to go see my movie a week early. Um, this just kind of happens with, with award show, with award movies, with big movies, with films, as they call them in, in cinema. And I don't... I don't know why. I don't know why in the age of the smartphone and the internet, uh, we're struggling to see movies and when they come out. Well, the other thing is, you know, I can understand a limited release. But then say limited release, like New York, L.A. That's the only place it's playing this week. Next week you can find it wide release. Like, I, I wouldn't mind it, but I just need some information. Yeah. Like I said, I went 40 minutes out of my way and just and to watch a movie I could have watched there's a theater about a mile away from me that I could have yeah. watched Pacific Rim at. And I, I now that being said, I did have an excellent time at the Alamo Draft at <laughs> because because it's the Alamo Draft House. Shameless plug for the Alamo Draft House. <laughs> Despite the drive, it was worth it because Alamo Draft House. Yeah, 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 no, I know. I at least it was a good theater, nice screen, great sound. You know, I I, I had a brew while I was waiting because I was about forty five minutes early for the next showing as well. Mm. Well, at least you made at least you made lemonade. You had that going for you. I I'm not even really a big fan of limited release. I've never understood that. They're like, oh, it's out for a limited time, and it's out everywhere at another time. Like, why? What does that accomplish? Like, what is that just to get reviewers to see it early? I guess. I feel like, like it's a test. It's a you know you'll you'll test the major markets, and there's probably an accountant somewhere that has an algorithm that says if if you do. This well in the major markets, then we know how how wide to to release it or not release it. Yeah, I guess. Like I, I've never, I've never got that. And it also helps I don't live anywhere where I'm getting extremely limited releases, like New York or L.A. Must be nice for people out there, but for the rest of the world, like, what is it? Just to build hype, just to get people in big markets to go see it and get on social media and be like, it's awesome. Like you might as well just call them early screenings, or like sneak peeks or something, and and have them open to the public. I, I've never the limited release thing doesn't make any sense to me. I, it just doesn't. I, I don't get it. Yeah, I saw another story that said that uh, Isle of Dogs had some great like uh, opening film ratio or something like screen to whatever release, and I was like, well, yeah, it came out on ten screens in two <laughs> cities or something. Like, of course, like it's yeah, it's a doctored statistic. Right, and one of them is freaking Hollywood. I'm sure it did great. Yeah, like that's all that's all they do over there is they go see movies. <sighs> I guess for for this segment of, of the death of cinema, I don't I don't have much other, much else to say about this other than I feel your pain. I'm sorry that happened to you. Well, I mean, it makes for a good story. Live and learn. <laughs> that's, 
certainly does. Yeah, it, in the future, watch out. It does make it difficult to predict what is actually going to be on the show because this isn't the first time that I've we've said, "Hey, we're going to go see X," and then X is not out. And <laughs> when it said it was going to be, yeah, it's challenging. Maybe we should be buying our tickets a week early or something. Either way, we should probably move on to our next movie. And I've got a funny story about this one, but before we get into it, <laughs> I do want to announce what it is, uh, even though I said it earlier. Yes, the movie is The Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou. And I'm pretty confident I said that right because I think I've been butchering Zissou. Zissou? I think it's Zissou. Either way, here's the story about The Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou. So we were going to go see Isle of Dogs. We both went and saw Pacific Rim. Uh, it was okay. And it gets to... Like the day before we record this and we're both scratching our heads like, what are we going to watch for the show? Like, we need to do something. You know, we need to go see something. Um, we were talking about going and seeing Love, Simon, but I didn't want to double down and go see two movies in, in, at the same theater if we're going to do that next weekend again. It seemed like we should do something on streaming that's more accessible. We kicked around a couple ideas and I had the brilliant idea of, hey, let's watch a Wes Anderson movie in anticipation of Isle of Dogs. It's not as good as an Isle of Dogs review, but maybe it'll scratch that itch for people who wanted to see it or maybe haven't seen this movie because I know a lot of people haven't seen all the Wes Anderson films. I have it myself. Andy, I don't know if you have, but no. either way. Not, not so we go looking and it turns out there's not a whole lot of Wes Anderson movies available on streaming services. Okay, Currently, Amazon has uh, none, I think. HBO has the Royal Tenenbaums and Netflix has Moonrise Kingdom. And I say currently because last night when we checked this, it had the life aquatic with Steve Zissou. <laughs> so you watched it yesterday, and that's great. I got the brilliant idea, like, hey, it's Sunday night. I'm going to watch it in the morning. It'll be fine. So I wake up this morning. I get on Netflix. 6 a.m. I go looking, and it's not there. <laughs> Come to find out, midnight, last night, or this morning, 12.01 a.m., whatever, the life aquatic with Steve Zissou left Netflix. We happen to catch the one movie that left on March 26th. What are the odds? Like, well, astronomically, what are the odds? Well, the funny part is, is, so I only watched about 70% of it, and then I went to bed, and I was like, oh, I'll finish it during lunch tomorrow. Yeah. And then I go looking for it at lunch, and I'm like, where is it? And then I, I did some sleuthing and, and realized that, that yeah, we, we started watching the movie that they was going to leave the next day. Right. So I ponied up. Four bucks and rented it, uh, and and damn it, we're gonna talk about it because <laughs> I had to pay for it. So now it's gonna happen. And and you made the point we should probably talk about a different Wes Anderson film, one that's more accessible. But honestly, I hadn't seen this one, and I was heard it was good, and I should check it out. And and watching it like upon reflection, I'm really glad we talked about this one, or we're gonna talk about this one. I'm glad we watched this one in anticipation of Isle of Dogs. I should say. So, with that being said, the Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou. Supposedly, Cousteau and his cronies invented the idea of putting walkie-talkies into the helmet. But we made ours with a special rabbit ear on the top so we could pipe in some music. When his partner is killed by the mysterious and possibly non-existent jaguar shark, Steve Zissou and his team Zissou crew set off for an expedition to hunt down the creature. Along with his estranged wife, a beautiful journalist, and a co-pilot who could possibly be his son, the crew sets off for one wild ride. Andy, you watched 70% of this movie. <laughs> what did you think of The Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou? <laughs> yes. 
so it's it's incredibly quirky and y- unique and original. I mean, it, it takes place. So it, you're dealing with a documentary film crew. You have lots of boats, planes. Like I was just thinking about the logistics of of filming it. Um, but it's, it's just very unique. So you have this really, and it's a really odd crew. Like none of them are are qualified to be doing what they're doing on on the ship. And Steve Zissou himself doesn't seem to be a very well-revered or competent uh, documentarian or filmmaker. Um, so it's incredibly quirky, and it's got this really great uh, cast. And, you know, it has a lot of the Wes Anderson-isms of lots of symmetrical shots, very quirky characters, people getting punched, um, family drama, so I, I enjoyed the I don't I don't think it works narratively very well. I don't the the story between the um Owen Wilson, the father son dynamic, is he my son? We're trying to reconnect thirty years later. That wasn't very compelling to me. But everything else is so kind of crazy and off the wall, like you can't help but kind of enjoy it. I think um, I, this movie is very much an, an introspective kind of project because this was, I, I guess, Wes Anderson's fourth film following Bottle Rocket, Rushmore, and The Royal Tenenbaums. This came out in 2004. This is well before a lot of movies that people have seen from him. This was him doing something very auteur, like very different. Like this movie does a lot of things uh, that Wes Anderson hadn't done yet and in a way that's very experimental and it was a lot of fun to watch that kind of play out I think any almost personally I think almost any movie that features a film crew in the movie is saying something about the process of making a film I think that much is valid um, and in a lot of ways I thought man this says a lot about Wes Anderson and kind of who he was when he was making this movie because Steve Zissou plays this character or or played by Bill Murray is a character who a lot of people aspire to. Um, A lot of people look up to him. A lot of people tell him like the journalist played by Gwyneth Paltrow or his potential son, Ned played by Owen Wilson. A lot of people tell him, Hey, I, I, I was in your Zissou society when you were a kid, Zissou society when I was a kid. Um, You know, I, you've been a hero all my life. And He's a man who has done a lot, but clearly doesn't doesn't really see joy in things anymore. He hasn't really found what he's looking for. Like he's he's he surrounds himself with people who aren't necessarily his family because he's got an estranged wife. But he surrounds himself with his crew, but he doesn't really have a place in the world, and that's why he spends time on the water out out on an island. Like he he doesn't really have a place for himself. He's not he's not normal. He's different. Um, yeah. And he's a big jerk. And he's a big jerk. Yeah. Uh, similar to, I'd like to think, how Wes Anderson felt. And he kind of, you know, he's going out and he's making projects. And it turns out, like, his first ones were good. But now, like, his stuff's not that great anymore. And the and people feel differently about him. At the very beginning of the movie, you get a screening of his latest film. And people walk out. People don't really care. And, like, as, as somebody who's just kind of getting into the directing game, this being his fourth feature, like, I can't help but wonder if that, that must be exactly how Wes Anderson felt. What I keep wondering is, are, are there, there's, it seems like there's parallels to Moby Dick. Mm-hmm. Like, he's chasing the great white whale, and he's, like, this very difficult-to-deal-with captain. Um, 
And yeah, it's interesting that uh, anytime I do the same thing, whenever you see a film within a film, play within a play, that's always something that jumps mm-hmm. out, out to me because it's like, it's a very old literary device or what was a literary device now a cinematic device. Um, but no, I hadn't really thought about it from that angle of, of that's how he's viewing himself at that point. Yeah. And I don't know if there's anything to that. I, I could just totally be pulling that out, but I mean, it's a, it's a podcast about personal interpretation, right? That makes sense. That's how I felt about it. And I thought it was so intriguing to watch Wes Anderson kind of play with his, what is now like tried and true format. There's a lot of handheld in this movie. A lot of handheld. And Wes Anderson is typically a director, I would say, is almost always locked on a tripod because I've seen a lot of his later work. And I would presume that, yeah, Wes Anderson's on a tripod, always. And those weird, like, square frame shots, you know what I'm talking about, where just look straight at whatever's happening and, like, it's very perpendicular. That's how I've known Wes Anderson. But this movie doesn't have all of that. There's a lot of, like, two shots and conversations back and forth. And there's a lot of handheld. There's a surprising amount of stop motion in this movie. Um, any sea creature in this film is this beautiful color kind of claymation done by Henry Selleck, the guy who did Nightmare Before Christmas, like the one of the biggest stop motion directors ever, um, who worked with Wes Anderson in this film. And it's interesting to see, only a couple years later, he made Fantastic Mr. Fox, and now we're going to see Isle of Dogs, another stop motion film. So... It's really cool to see Wes Anderson kind of experiment. A lot of actors who are now Wes Anderson staples and are in Isle of Dogs, along with a lot of his other movies, are in this movie for the first time working with him. So it's crazy to see like how Wes Anderson depicts a character surrounding himself by a crew who loves and adores him despite his faults. Um, and in a way, he's kind of that person in a weird way. Um but it's also applicable to viewers, I think. I, I felt like watching Steve, I was like, there, there's something here. There, there's something to being a person that people look up to, but not feeling like you deserve that praise. Or maybe feeling like you're washed up, you're has-been, you're not, you're not quite what you used to be. Um, and looking for that next kind of great adventure, looking for um, something. And, and, and that's kind of the journey that, that he takes on this movie. And it's really, really charming. Yeah, because at the beginning of the film, they they kind of go through all his past document, you know, uh, documentaries, and I mean, it's something like he's done ten, and every and they've all been bad, <laughs> they've all right. been terrible, but he's he's like still at it, still, still trying to do them better, still trying to find his you know white whale. I'd be remiss if we didn't talk about the comedy in this movie. Um, Wes Anderson really does play with the. I don't want to say situational comedy, but being able to set up your expectations like pins in a bowling alley and then knock them down from a completely different direction. There's there's a lot of moments in the movie where something very serious will be happening and it's immediately cut off by some kind of like comedy jab, whether it be a quick pan to something or something odd coming in from out of frame. There's a great bit at the very beginning of the movie when uh, Steve Zissou, uh, Bill Murray's character, is sitting on a stage talking about his most recent picture. And Owen Wilson's character asks him about this great, this mythical shark that killed his friend and what he's going to do about it. Or, you know, what, what are you planning to do? And Bill Murray starts to explain that he's going to murder the shark somehow. He's going to find the shark, track it down, and kill it. And while he's saying this, what should be a very serious moment, just out of nowhere, like a waiter walks across the stage and sets down like a pitcher of ice water and kind of stands there for a minute awkwardly and walks off. It's a great sight gag. 
And it comes out of nowhere. Like, it's just one of those things, like, that he does in this movie. There's there's a ton of little charming moments like that that get a laugh. It really kind of keep things light in a movie that otherwise would probably be really serious. Um, yeah, th- there's definitely lots of moments where it's not, it's not that you don't know whether or not you're supposed to laugh, but... You, you get a little bit of that feeling in the, in the context of the film. You definitely don't know. Like in, if inside the, the people in the situation, you're like, are you, am I supposed to laugh at that? Are people supposed to laugh at that? But it's definitely funny to, to the audience, but the, the, the humor is a big part of, of his film. Yeah. Another classic, uh, Wes Anderson thing. He'll use, um, incredibly vulgar language at odd moments just to kind of like shock, laugh you. Um, and it, it get, you get a shock laugh and it works. I think I, I don't think it's too abrasive. It's usually not too offensive, and it kind of, kind of, kind of goes like one of the one of the funny abrasive things that happens in this movie. Um, at one point, Bill Murray's character uh, invites Ned, uh, his son, to be a um, to be on the crew, to be part of his part of his life aquatic crew, uh, and he agrees to do it. And Bill Murray immediately hands him like a pistol. And he goes, whoa, whoa, yeah, what do I, I, don't, I don't want this one. I need this for He goes, no, no, no. Every crew member gets a Glock. And then you start to notice every crew member has a pistol on them at all times, which turns out later in the movie, pretty much useless. Didn't, didn't do them any good, but it's funny. Like, it's, it's just kind of a running bit in the film. And, like, there's a ton of that stuff in this movie. Um, yeah, there's lots of, lots of little quirks and, and little... And, yeah, and that's one of those gags that just... It's funny when he first hands him the gun, but it's also just funny to see every single time you see the crew member, yeah, they have this like Han Solo style holster on their leg where, where they all keep their glocks. Right, yeah, they they wear these like crazy goofy Wes Anderson out like crew outfits where they're wearing like light navy blue and teal uh, with these bright orange hats with buzz balls on top of them that look so stupid. And then, yeah, strapped around their leg is a jet black Glock safety off ready to roll so yeah it's it, it's funny man like this the way wes anderson kind of sets up a universe and injects reality into it is is crazy charming and i don't think it would be a good conversation about a wes anderson movie without talking about some of his other work andy what else have you seen by him and and where do you land on wes anderson do you like him not a fan where are you uh the most recent things I've seen are Moonrise Kingdom and uh Grand Budapest Hotel, which I really liked uh, both those films, particularly Grand Budapest. Uh it was nominated for several Oscars. I believe it won maybe I should look it up real quick, but I I think it won maybe for writing, but that was that shows a very mature director because it has still has a lot of these quirks but it has a much better narrative, much deeper plot and characters. Um, that features uh, Saoirse Ronan is in that as well. The only movies I've seen from him are Tenenbaums, which I saw a few years ago and didn't like, and I need to go back and rewatch Darjeeling Limited, which I just saw a couple years ago and actually really enjoyed. Uh, that that kind of renewed my interest in him. And then Grand Budapest Hotel, which I saw like last year, which I really liked. Um, this one's new, um, but kind of familiar in an odd way, if you're familiar with his work, and, and I really enjoyed it. Really good stuff. I, I I know it's not as popular as the others, but like, man, it's good stuff. And it was great to see Bill Murray actually playing a role he enjoyed again. You know, like actually not being like he wasn't freaking Groundhog Day, just miserable all the time on camera. <laughs> like he actually wants to be a part of it and works hard at it. And it's not just him, but everybody in this movie. The cast is great, very well directed. Yeah, the the cast is. 
I mean, it, Bill Murray, Owen Wilson, Kate Blanchett, Willem Dafoe, Jeff Goldblum, Michael Gambon. Like, it's just this incredible kind of who is who's who. These are all household names, and this is, you know, almost 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. It, it really is crazy how well all of it comes together, and it works. Like, it, it you can pull all of these great elements together and, and put them in one movie, and, like, it, it not only functions, like, it exceeds. Um, really great stuff. Not available on Netflix. Don't bother looking. Uh, Andy, <laughs> would you recommend The Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou? Yeah, I think so. I, I think uh, most people would would probably enjoy it. Yeah, I, I really dug it, man. I, I would get the Blu-ray if I could, I think. There's, there's something... There's something about this movie. It reminds me of the first time I saw something like Lebowski. Like, it feels like a movie I'll go back and watch in a couple of years, and it'll mean something different. And, like, I I value that. I don't know if that's all of his movies or just this one, but, like, there's... It really does have a charm to it that I really enjoyed. So, that's The Life Aquatic. And I think, as far as I know, that's... That's our show. That wraps pretty much episode 15 of Off Script. Before we go, there are a couple announcements. Andy, you want to you wanna take this one? Okay, so we mentioned this last week, but uh, next week we are going to have a special guest, Jack from Jack's Movie Reviews, the YouTube uh, channel uh, that does film essays. He's going to be stopping by, and he's going to help us review Ready Player One, as well as if Isle of Dogs comes out, we're unsure. But uh, hopefully that that as well. And we're also going to be looking at the Last Jedi DVD uh, and Blu-ray, which comes out uh, tomorrow. Yes, I'm really looking forward to talking with Jack about Ready Player One and mostly Isle of Dogs because he we thought it was coming out this week. We were talking about having him on and he really wanted to talk about it, but it didn't work out. Um, so we're going to have him on next week, but it comes out next week, I think. So as far as I know, that should work out great. Like, we, we get to talk about some killer movies with somebody who knows their stuff. If you haven't seen it, he just put out, I think yesterday, a really cool review of, or kind of a look back at, I should say, at The Shawshank Redemption by Frank Darabont. Um, check it out. And check out his other work, too. Like, he's got a really cool channel. He is absolutely worth your time. Uh, I promise you'll watch his stuff and wonder how the hell we got him on this podcast. I still don't really know myself, <laughs> but I'm looking forward to having a conversation with him about... Ready Player One, Isle of Dogs, and The Last Jedi. And and real quick for The Last Jedi Blu-ray review, let's clarify. What are we reviewing? Just a look back at the movie? Are we looking at special features? Yeah, just, like, what do you... Yeah. Uh, mostly, mostly just a look back at, at the movie. Yeah. Well, that'll be good, I think. That, God, that episode's going to run long. It'll be great. <laughs> it'll be fine. It'll be, wor- it'll be, wor- it'll be, it'll worth, be worth it. It'll be worth it. Yeah, it's a special. Special guest. Yeah, special guest, that's right. <laughs> if you want to get involved with the show, if you want to find out more about what we're doing or tell us what you think of these movies we talked about, maybe recommend uh, a review that we should look at for kind of further introspection or ask us what we think about something, email us at mail at offscriptfilmreview.com. Check the website, offscriptfilmreview.com. Uh, with that being said, I think uh, that wraps our show, episode 15 for Offscript, the home of bold cinema. I'm Zach Lewis. And I'm Dr. Draper. Thanks for listening.